We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. City WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at letstalkfaith.com. Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded. By wording it this way, that Joseph was the husband of Mary rather than the father of Jesus. Matthew, at this point, is implying that Jesus was born of a virgin and therefore is deity. But as he continues to write, he more than implies it, he explicitly states it as a fact by presenting the story of the supernatural conception and then birth of the Messiah. This, folks, is Matthew's Christmas story. He does it, though, in a way that not only does he convey it as truth, but he defends it against its critics. Most people agree that Jesus was a good man. Many accept the fact that he died a sacrificial death. The Bible presents Jesus as much more than this. He is God in the way he lived. He is God in the way he died. And he is God in the way he was born. And it all fits together in the amazing God-man, Jesus Christ. You're listening to Verse by Verse, and we want to welcome you here to a series of messages from Matthew chapter 1 that focus on the person of Jesus Christ and how he was born. You may have heard the words virgin birth. Maybe you have an idea what that means, or maybe you've never thought about it. There are a lot of people, even church people, who reject that Jesus had a supernatural or miraculous birth. They deny the virgin birth as something that is either unnecessary or just too hard to believe. Today, Pastor Steve Kreloff is going to explain to us what it means to declare that Jesus was virgin-born and why that is important. Here's Pastor Steve. In the year 1823, Thomas Jefferson said these words. He said, The day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. Now, what Jefferson meant by this is simply that he believed that the virgin birth was just a myth, a fable, a legend, a fabricated story that one day he hoped and believed would be classified with all the other myths and legends of the world. That's what Jefferson was talking about, but he was wrong. He was absolutely wrong. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is not a myth. It's not a fable. It's not a legend. It is true and is still believed and loved by those who hold to the teachings of the Bible. But Thomas Jefferson's comments are beneficial in the sense that they reveal that the virgin birth of Christ is one of the Biblical doctrines, one of those doctrines found in Scripture that arouses strong opposition. Although the story of Christmas is known all around the the world, the doctrine of Christ's 
virgin birth has been attacked and maligned as much as any doctrine found in the word of God. And those who oppose this doctrine often go to great lengths to try to explain it away. Now, how do they do this? Well, in a number of ways. One approach is to just dismiss the biblical account of the virgin birth by denying the authority of Scripture. See, if you don't accept the Bible as God's authoritative word, then it really doesn't matter what it teaches, even if it clearly presents the doctrine of the virgin birth. But a second approach of those who oppose this doctrine is to try to explain why the Bible includes the account of Christ's virgin birth if, in fact, it never happened. Why include it? And the way they often try to explain this is by accusing the early Christians of inventing the teaching of the virgin birth of Christ decades after his death. Now, you may wonder, but why? Why would anyone invent such a teaching if it wasn't true? Well, that's a very valid question. And those who oppose the doctrine of Christ's virgin birth actually have an answer for it. It's the wrong answer, but they have an answer for it. Here's how one group calling its website religioustolerance.org explains the rise of belief in Christ's virgin birth. And I quote, Sometime between 70 and 90 A.D., a myth of the virgin birth was invented, probably to strengthen the authority of Christ's teachings by claiming that his birth was miraculous. It was a time of great change as the Roman army had demolished Jerusalem and its temples and scattered many of the Jews throughout the Roman Empire. There they would come in contact with many stories of virgin births by various politicians and deities from pagan religions. So what they are saying is that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, but when the early Jewish Christians became exposed to the many virgin birth stories found in other religions, they just incorporated a virgin birth story into Christianity in order to enhance the teaching of Jesus. That is to say that once Jerusalem was destroyed, Jewish Christians were scattered. They became exposed to pagan thinking. They said, hey, why not take this virgin birth story and put it into our message? It will make Jesus look good. That's what they say. Now, it is true that many ancient religions do contain a virgin birth story, but that doesn't mean that the early Christians copied the virgin birth of Christ from these pagan tales. In fact, if you compare the many pagan virgin birth stories with the biblical account of Christ's virgin birth, you'll see how really different in nature they are. Stories from ancient religions, folks, Virgin birth stories are weird. They're bizarre. Many times they're crude. For example, the Babylonians believe that Tammuz was conceived by a sunbeam. Buddha's mother is said to have conceived him the moment she saw a great white elephant enter her stomach. Hinduism believes that Vishnu, after being reincarnated as a fish, a tortoise, a boar, and a lion, entered the womb of Devaki and was born as her son Krishna. Even Alexander the Great was believed by some to have been virgin-born by Zeus using a snake 
to impregnate his mother, Olympias. So even though these these virgin stories smack of, of silliness and fantasy, we do have to admit that the story of a virgin birth in a religious context is not unique to Christianity. However, that doesn't mean that the early Christians took their belief in Christ's miraculous conception from these stories. So a very valid and good question to ask is why do so many ancient religions have virgin birth stories like these? Why? And I think the explanation is very simple. In anticipation of the virgin birth of Christ, Satan created these fanciful ancient myths through false religions in order to make the birth of Christ appear to be legendary and rather common. In other words, these stories exist in order to degrade the precious truth of Christ's birth by associating it with legends of pregnancies that result from such absurdities as sunbeams and and elephants and snakes. How ridiculous. The biblical story of Christ's conception and birth doesn't even resemble the virgin birth theories of pagan religions. See, those theories are often presented, and I just told you a few of them, but there are many more, but they're often presented with immoral and repulsive characters, gods who were inflamed by lust that led to rapes and adulteries. Here's how one Bible teacher, a man by the name of William Hendrickson, who is now with the Lord, but for many years William Hendrickson was an incredible Bible teacher who's written a number of wonderful commentaries. And here's how William Hendrickson, after explaining in his commentary on Matthew the immorality associated with just one of these pagan tales, he wrote this, Can anyone in his right mind believe that the clean and beautiful story of Christ's virgin birth was derived from or even suggested by anything as filthy as this silly tale. Well, apparently some people can, but they're not thinking clearly. Understand that inspired by Satan, there are many who go to great lengths to reject the virgin birth of our Lord. But why? Why put so much emphasis and and so much effort into rejecting and denying this one doctrine because the virgin birth of Christ is one of the foundational truths of Christianity. It is a non-negotiable. It is an essential truth of our faith. Remove the virgin birth of Christ and you have no Christianity. You have no gospel. You see, without the virgin birth of Christ... You have no message of good news. You have no salvation because the virgin birth of Christ establishes the fact that Jesus is both human as well as divine. He is God who never relinquished being God, but became a man so that he could atone for the sins of his people. Remove his supernatural conception and then birth and you have destroyed the message of the gospel. That's why this precious truth has been so attacked and so maligned, because ultimately the source of all of these attacks and these absurd theories is the devil, the father of lies, who lies primarily through false religion. His goal is to undermine and discredit the truth of the gospel. And those who hate Christ 
and the truth of his deity are drawn to these theories in order to try to justify their unbelief and their rejection of him. And understand this, the rejection of Christ is not limited to those who are secular minded. As we said, Satan, who uses and is the father of false religions, uses religious leaders to attack this doctrine. This was true in Christ's day. It's true today. For example, in John 5:18, we read this, speaking of the Jewish leaders who not only attacked Christ's virgin birth, as we'll see in a moment, but they attacked his deity, which is all tied into this. They said in John 5:18, for this cause, therefore, the Jewish religious leaders, John calls them the Jews, but he means the religious leaders, were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, it means in their opinion he was, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. For that, they wanted to kill him. In John chapter 10, we read this, starting in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They were incensed with that. That a man is God, and yet that is absolutely true. God became a man. But it wasn't simply the deity of Christ that so bothered them. There were also certain wicked accusations and insinuations leveled against the legitimacy of his birth. If you look at John chapter 8, verse 41. John eight forty-one, we read this once again. Another encounter with the Jewish religious leaders, antagonistic to Christ, We read this, Jesus said, you're doing the deeds of your father, meaning you're doing the deeds of Satan. They said to him, note this, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. It appears that these people were charging Jesus with being the illegitimate son of Mary. They knew the story that Joseph was not. Christ's biological father. And so it appears they're accusing him of being the product, the product of a union between Mary and a man who is not her husband, perhaps some Roman soldier stationed in Galilee or maybe a neighbor. And you know what? That specific attack against legitimacy of Christ by religious leaders of his virgin birth has not gone away. It is actually a very popular view held today especially amongst religious leaders who try to explain away Christ's miraculous birth. And when I say miraculous birth, what I mean by that is his conception. The birth was actually not miraculous. I may say that, but you know what I mean by that. It was the conception that was miraculous. The birth was normal. Birth like any other birth. But they try to argue it away. They try to disbelieve it. In fact, a number of years ago, a poll was taken of over 7,000 ministers from various liberal Protestant denominations about their religious beliefs, and the results are staggering. The poll revealed that 34% of American Baptist clergy, now that's a denomination, not Baptists who are American, but American Baptist clergy, 34% of them, 44% of Episcopalian clergy, 49% of USA Presbyterian clergy, and 60% 
of Methodist ministers reject the doctrine of Christ's virgin birth. Staggering. Staggering. So we live in a world where many people, even religious leaders, deny and oppose and sometimes vehemently oppose the virgin birth of Christ. But that really shouldn't surprise us because Christ's miraculous conception was attacked by the religious leaders of his day during his earthly ministry. And you know what? Those attacks continued even after his death, resurrection, and then ascension to heaven. And we know that because Matthew writes about it in his gospel. Now, keep this in mind. When Matthew lived, these stories were circulating about Christ, these denials of his virgin birth, of his messiahship, of who he really was, his deity. And so Matthew, when he writes his gospel account, is writing not only to present the truth about Christ's life, ministry, death, but also to defend it against its critics who would distort and misrepresent it. You see, there is a significant apologetic tone to Matthew's gospel. And by that, I mean that Matthew, uh, apologetics doesn't mean he, he apologizes. It means he's defending the truth. An apologetic tone as he seeks to preserve the great truths about the life and ministry of Christ. Now, based on our studies of Matthew's gospel, which I don't know if you realize it, it's been going on now for five and a half years. You and I have both grown old studying this gospel, and I couldn't think of a better way to grow old or, any, or doing anything better than that. But we've seen in our studies from Matthew that Matthew's overall purpose and, and theme and objective in his gospel account is to present primarily to the Jewish people, the Jewish, Jewish readers, that Jesus is really Israel's legitimate Messiah and King. This is an evangelistic book, as well as a book that strengthens our faith. That's why he opens, if, if you look at Matthew chapter 1, he opens the book with the genealogy of Christ. Notice the very first words of the Gospel of Matthew, the very first words of the New Testament. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right from the onset of the gospel, Matthew establishes the genealogy, the family tree of our Lord to show that he is in the line. He is the legitimate heir to the promise God made to not only Abraham, that one of your seed will be the one who all the families of the earth will be blessed in, but also to David, a promise was made that one of your descendants will sit upon your throne and his kingdom will never end. He will be a king like you, but far greater. He'll have an eternal kingdom. So Matthew's point is to say Christ has the royal credentials to be king. And as you go through this, and we won't take the time, but as you go through the genealogy, you see that this man begat this man who begat this man who was the father of this man who was the father of this one who was the father of this one. But then a curious thing occurs. You come to verse 16, and it's different. It says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. By wording it this way, 
that Joseph was the husband of Mary rather than the father of Jesus, Matthew, at this point, is implying that Jesus was born of a virgin and therefore is deity. But as he continues to write, and our passage this morning is what he has continued to write from verses 18 through 25, he more than implies it, he explicitly states it as a fact by presenting the story of the supernatural conception and then birth of the Messiah. This, folks, is Matthew's Christmas story. He does it, though, in a way that not only does he convey it as truth, but he defends it against its critics. And how does he do this? How does he accomplish these two goals? He gives us four reasons for believing in the virgin birth of the Messiah. These are substantial reasons. This is why you and I can have conviction about this. This is why we not only can know it is truth, but we can have it in our souls and and we can be ready when someone asks us, why do you believe in Christianity? Why do you believe in the virgin birth of Christ? If you met a man like Thomas Jefferson who said it's just a fable, it's just a, a tall tale, you ought to be able to give him, as Peter says, a reason for the hope that lies within you. Matthew supplies us with these reasons. He gives us four of them. So let's get into our text. Why should we believe in the virgin birth of Christ? The first reason that Matthew gives us for believing in the virgin birth of Christ is this. It's because of the miracle of Mary's pregnancy. It was a miracle, a supernatural miracle. We read in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit having already listed Christ's earthly family background in the genealogy, Matthew now tells us how the Messiah came into the world. In other words, what was the manner of his birth? How was he born? And he begins by immediately telling us that his conception was miraculous and supernatural, unlike any other conception in the history of mankind. Because Mary, his mother, was pregnant with him, even though she and her husband, Joseph, had never had sexual relations. In other words, she was still a virgin, and yet she had a child growing in her womb. Now, who were these people? Who was Mary? Who was Joseph? Well, the Bible really gives us very little information about them. We know that Mary was a young Jewish girl. Her name would not have been called Mary. That's the English form of it. She would have been Miriam. The young Jewish girl, descendant of King David, who very likely grew up in the city of Nazareth in the Galilee. According to John chapter 19, verse 25, she had a sister also named Mary. You might think that's strange. You might think that only George Foreman would name all of his sons George. But apparently that was not that uncommon In those days, this is Mary, this is Mary, this is Mary. We also know that she had a relative, probably a cousin, by the name of Elizabeth, who became the mother of John the Baptist. Luke tells us that in chapter 1 of his gospel account. And also from Luke's account, we know that after the angel announced to Mary that she was chosen to be the mother of the Messiah, we're given a very positive picture of Mary's spirituality as a young godly woman who believed in God's word and was in submission to it because she says after the angel speaks to her 
She says, may it be done to me according to your word. There is a submissive heart. This is what you said. I accept that I am the mother, will be the mother of Messiah. It's not a fable or a legend like in one of those myths out of prehistoric times. Nobody made it up to make Jesus look more special. It's the absolute truth from God's word. It's a vital part of the gospel. Maybe you've never thought about it. Well, I hope you understand more clearly the doctrine of the virgin birth. Even more important, I really hope you believe because the Bible teaches it, and it is one of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Thanks for listening in today to this very important message from God's Word. Today's broadcast of Verse by Verse is available for download at our website, versebyverseradio.org. You can find nearly all of our broadcasts posted there at no charge. Download as many as you like. Think about signing up for the Verse by Verse newsletter. You can sign up online to receive it, or just give us a call and request it by phone. The number to call to order the newsletter is 727-239-0306. Once again, the web address is versebyverseradio, all one word, dot O-R-G. Finally, we would like to thank those of you who are partnering together with Verse by Verse through your prayers and financial gifts. Most of our resources are available free of charge. Our goal is to provide biblical instruction and spiritual encouragement to as many people as we can. Partners 